Good morning, church. Welcome here today. It's a privilege to be with my church family, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and a privilege once again to preach God's life-changing Word. Are you ready for the Word of God to bring hope and transformation into your life today? It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. Not some Scripture, but all Scripture. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that is my prayer for us all today as we spend time in God's Word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and commit this time to the Lord. Father God, we come to you this morning in the all-powerful and the all-saving name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for today and we stand on your word that says, because of your great love, we are not consumed. For your compassions never fail, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Lord, we declare this morning as your church here at Frontline that you are faithful. And because of your great love and your compassions toward us, we will not be consumed by what happens this side of the grave. We will not be destroyed by the enemy's attempts to bring brokenness and destruction because we put our trust in you. Some may trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Lord Jesus, you are holy and true. And as we study your true word today, may we be changed and inspired by it for your glory. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen Amen and amen. Church, this morning we continue with our series, Revealing Jesus. And today is part three of the church at Philadelphia. We find ourselves again in Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 to 13, and in the first two sessions of us looking at this church, we've only really covered in detail the first two verses, verses 7 and 8, but Lord willing, we will complete this letter to this specific church today. For those of you who are here for the first time this morning, or perhaps you've joined us over the past couple of weeks, this series that we've titled Revealing Jesus is a series and a study on the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the word revelation means an unveiling or a revealing. Hence the title of the series, Revealing Jesus. We are going verse by verse to study this eschatological book, this prophetic book of the end times, firstly, to reveal the magnificence of who Jesus is and how he brings everything in this world to its final glorious conclusion, and secondly, so that we deeply prepare ourselves as the body of Christ with joyful anticipation of His imminent return. As I've said before, any mature believer who responsibly and diligently studies eschatology, it will lead that person straight to Christ, it will enlarge Christ, magnify Him, and show Him more capable every single time. And that's exactly what we're aiming to do throughout the series. Yes, we are going to be discussing very interesting topics like the rapture, the tribulation period, the new heaven and the new earth, the thousand-year millennial reign. But the focal point of everything we're going to cover is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's not forget that as we journey through this 
amazing book together. So last week in, in part two of the Church of Philadelphia, we looked at the literal church that existed in the first century AD and how they were a church that lived up to their name. You would remember the name Philadelphia comes from the tree, uh, two Greek words, philos and adelphos, which means brotherly love. And why was Jesus so pleased with this church? Because they followed his command of loving each other. They loved the brethren. They got this right. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 12, This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. The church at Philadelphia understood this type of love. They understood and followed this command. And church, Jesus is calling us to do the same. The type of love that Jesus is calling us to have is always bigger than ourselves. It's the type of love that inspired men like Martin Luther, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and many others to stand up for the truth in God's word and then to preach that truth around the world. As I said last week, not everyone is called to be a preacher or an evangelist, right? God has gifted us all differently and, and thank God for that. But what you and I can't escape is that this love that Jesus is calling us to is the type of love that always goes beyond ourselves. It always goes beyond our own personal wants and desires and comforts whatever that may look like, right? Whatever your situation, determination, or vocation. It always reaches out beyond our own personal space or the group of people that we are so usually comfortable with, and it touches someone else in a way that makes them feel recognized. It makes them feel worthy. It makes them feel the love of God through us. Amen? Last week, we also looked at how Jesus reveals himself as holy and true. He reveals himself as holy to this church because they were living in a city and among a culture that worshipped hedonism. They worshipped their own satisfaction through getting drunk and partying and having these sexual celebrations. But he also re reveals himself as true because holiness is always based on truth. And the type of love that, or the type of church that Jesus is after, and the type of church that he's going to rapture, firstly, is a church that knows what holiness is, and secondly, is a church that holds to propositional truth, not just experiential feelings. Yes, you are in a relationship God, with God, and yes, you will experience it. But it is based on propositional truth that Jesus came for you, Jesus died for you, he rose from the grave for you, Right? He's interceding for you, and he's coming back for you. Propositional truth that can be proven. And listen, church, this type of truth that I'm talking about, I think you would know, isn't very popular these days. But you know what? It never has been. But truth isn't determined by the culture of the day or even the audience that's listening. You know, Jesus was probably the only preacher who made his congregations much smaller with his sermons. He would have big crowds following him, and then he would come up with a line like this. In Luke chapter 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, 
Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Or when he says things like, it is harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Or even when he says in John chapter 6 that I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Now that sounds like a good thing, right? But that offended certain people, and the Bible says that many of his disciples left. Jesus spoke of eternal truths that turned many people away from him and the gospel, but he never let the culture or the crowd control or determine the truth. Jesus is holy and true. And then we also looked at how Jesus identifies himself as the one who holds the key of David, the one who is the rightful heir to the throne of David, and how he was going to take this church through an open doorway into heaven. A door that no one could shut, which is a reference to the rapture. And finally, we ended on verse 8, where Jesus says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Which means that if you're not proclaiming the name of Jesus as your foundation for everything you believe in, no matter what you claim to be or what special name you may have, as we saw when we looked at the church at Sardis, if you're not proclaiming the name of Jesus as your foundation for everything you're believing as a Christian, and there's just a general reference to some God out there, Jesus says you're dead and your faith is meaningless. Like it says in Proverbs chapter 30 verse 4, and I love this verse, I'm going to read it again. It says, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Or what is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. Is there anyone who knows his name this morning? Amen. Amen. His name is Jesus. So church, that's where we left off last week. And today we begin in verse 9. Have you got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3 verse 9? Let's see what the, the Lord continues to say to this church. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus uses this statement again that we came across when we looked at the church at Smyrna. Those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, but they are not, they are liars. And I know that we spoke about this when we covered the church at Smyrna, but let me just remind you quickly as to what is implied here. When Jesus refers to those who are of the synagogue of Satan, he's referring to the Judaizers that were infiltrating the church at the time. They were traditional Jews that were elevating their Jewish heritage as righteousness above the gospel message, and Jesus strikes that down without apology. He refutes it strongly and reminds them that they're not Jews at all. Because according to Jesus and confirmed by the Apostle Paul, true Jews are those through whom God has chosen to reveal His glory. They are those who are indeed born again, but not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit of God. Those are true Jews. So Jesus says they are of the synagogue of Satan because by elevating their own heritage with the gospel, 
or above the gospel, they were in fact preaching another gospel. The Apostle Paul speaks about this serious issue in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You know what it means to be accursed? It means to be doomed. But in case you missed the first time, he says it again in verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And why does he say it twice? Because it's another gospel. Because whenever you elevate your heritage, your skin color, your denominational preference, your talent or abilities above what Christ has done on the cross, it is another gospel. And Jesus doesn't say the doctrine is a little off here. Right? He says, your doctrine is straight out of hell. It is the synagogue of Satan. And this may seem like an insignificant verse, you know, if you're just browsing through the book of Revelation. But Jesus is emphatic about this type of demonic influence in the church. And he's not going to let it go unnoticed or undealt with. Because look at what he says in the latter part of verse 9. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. You see, there's going to come a point where they are going to know the truth. It will be too late for them, but it's not going to be too late for you, he says. Right? And church, there's going to come a time and a day where Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. True religion from false religion and true believers from false believers. That's what the sheep and and goat judgments are all about. And he doesn't say, you know what, these people love me. Rather, he says to all these people of the synagogue of Satan, I love them. Think about that. And that's amazing because we often think about it the other way around, don't we? Our focus is on worshiping and loving God, and that's absolutely correct in the way it should be. But you see, that because this church of Philadelphia loved God and loved each other, Because they kept his word and didn't deny his name, Jesus rewards them by saying, I love you. But he's not just going to say that to those who belong to him. He's going to say it to everyone else. He's going to make them come and bow down and acknowledge, yes, Lord, you do love them because they're yours and they belong to you. Church, isn't that amazing? Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, as I've mentioned before, I believe this is one of the proof texts for us that the church will be raptured and delivered from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. This is Jesus saying the reward for the church, the true followers of mine will be that they will escape the specific event that is going to test the inhabitants of the earth. And this is not just something that has been said to this church that existed 2,000 years ago. No, this is coming on the whole world at a very specific hour, which we call the, the Great Tribulation or, or Daniel's final week. It's a final age of trial that is going to devastate this planet where the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the whole world. 
But this church is very clearly and emphatically and directly told that they are going to be kept from it. Now, I know I said that we would talk about this in much greater detail when we get to chapter 4, and we will. But let me just start directing your thinking to what we're going to encounter when we get there. So remember, after the church age comes future things. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says to, to John, Write the things which you have seen, that's the glorious appearing of the Lord. Write the things which are, that's the church age, and write the things that will take place after this. These are the future things. And you know, whether we think much about this or not, church, these future things are on the verge of happening. They're on the verge of, of taking place, not in the sense that it's happening in weeks or, or months or days, but it's next. It's imminent. It's nearer every day. Just like it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And church, if we look around us and observe the, the present time that we're living in, it's no secret that these future things are not just nearer, they are imminent. Which means that the time for Jesus to appear, to return, shall I say, is imminent. And that may bring some apprehension when we hear that, especially if you read later on in the book of Revelation and what happens to the earth at that time, how the Antichrist is going to bring total control and devastation to the earth and how evil will be at its peak. But just like Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia that they will be spared from the hour of trial, this is a theme that is revealed to the bride of Christ right throughout Scripture. There's many, many references to this, and I'm just going to mention a couple of them this morning to start focusing your mind on these events. Is that okay? In Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 to 22, when Jesus is speaking about the end times, he says, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And then he says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. What does that mean, church? For the sake of the elect, we will not have to endure the great tribulation. Now the apostle Paul comes along in his letter to the Thessalonians, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, he says, and I want you to try to get a picture of these words when I read them out. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then it says, therefore comfort one another with these words. These are comforting words, right? We shouldn't be apprehensive. Amen? In the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he talks in verses 1 through 11 about the times and seasons of the Lord's return. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3, now brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a 
thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now he's talking about the intensity of the tribulation that comes attached to that part of the end. That's the context. But then a few verses later in verse 9 he says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So church, the church is not appointed to wrath, and he's going to, the Lord is going to graciously rescue his true church from the coming tribulation period that is coming upon the inhabitants of the earth. By the way, interestingly, there are a number of references to that phrase, inhabitants of the earth, or as it says in other translations, those who dwell on the earth throughout the book of Revelation, and it always refers to unbelievers. It's not referring to the elect that Jesus is coming back for. So I always want to jump into this fully, you know, whenever I discuss this topic, but I'm going to have to restrain myself until we get to chapter 4. But at least we're starting to form a view of what this means and how often Scripture refers to these events. Amen? So if we move on to Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus again speaks about these last days and he says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So normally at this point in the letter, Jesus would be telling the church to do something to correct their behavior, right? He would say, listen, I have these things, good things to say about you, but nevertheless, I have this against you. But here at Philadelphia, there's not one single word of correction. All he tells them to do is to hold on to what they already have. He's not telling them to try and obtain something. He's saying, you already have it, just hold on now, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He says, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to take you through this open door. Just keep all these things that you already have. Keep my word, keep my name, keep living holy lives, keep loving each other, keep doing what I've called you to do. That's all you need to do so that no one will take your crown. You know, it's interesting to note that the only other time a crown is mentioned is at the church at Smyrna, which was the other good church. So there's only two churches that have this crown because they've both been faithful. They've both remained committed to what God has called them to do. They've loved each other, and they've both been suffering as well by undergoing persecution. But I want you to really see what the Lord says to them here in verse 12. He says, the one who is victorious, or to him who overcomes, in other translations, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. And again, these kinds of things could fit very well into an eschatological interpretation of the Scripture because it immediately moves into eternal blessing. And there are four blessings that I want to show you here this morning. And this is really, I want you to take note this morning because this is really significant for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. 
Firstly, he says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And let me ask you a question. What are pillars in a temple? They are the important parts of the building that are essential for the functioning of the temple itself because they hold things up. Jesus says to this church, you will be pillars in the temple of my God. And you know, in ancient times, pillars in great temples were dedicated to certain people. The pillar would have the name of a well-known or famous or honored person carved into the temple pillar. Church, metaphorically, this means that our names will be carved, as it were, into the temple of heaven. Secondly, he says, never again will you leave it. I'm taking you away and I'll never leave you again. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You are going to be in my house and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is such a great promise given to the faithful church because he's saying, once I've got you, I won't drop you. Once you're in the Father's hands, he'll never let you go. Right? And you're never going to have to face what you're facing this side of the grave ever again. Because you will be forever God's and forever honored in his house. Now, somebody needs to say amen to that. Amen. Thirdly, he says, I will write on them the name of my God. Now, it doesn't say very clearly which of God's names we will have written on us. But just like the Antichrist will write his name and his mark of 666 on his followers, we will have the name of our God written on us. And fourthly, he says, he will also write in them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from our God. So get this, church. Number one, we will have a pillar with our name on it, which metaphorically means that we are permanently planted and secured in heaven. Number two, never again will we leave it, which means we will never leave his presence. Number three, God will put his name on us, which means that we belong to him. And number four, we will be marked and identified with the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which means that our citizenship is eternally secured. Amen. Church, are you getting this this morning? Amen. This means that we are forever citizens of heaven with all rights and privileges to the eternal city. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to what end, you may ask? Verse 4 says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Somebody needs to appreciate the Lord and give him some praise and glory for that, those promises this morning. Finally, Jesus says, in the last part of verse 12, he says, and I will also write on them my new name. And what could that name be? Well, when Jesus died, the Father raised him from the dead and gave him a name that is above 
every other name, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, those beneath the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whatever that name is, be it Lord or a name that we've never heard before, it will be a name that encompasses the fullness of his eternal and glorious majesty. Amen? In closing this morning, this message to the church at Philadelphia is so comforting to hear as to how the Lord commends and blesses this type of church. This is a message that if any pastor or any person in spiritual leadership would hear this, you would think that they couldn't move fast enough to become this kind of church, right? I mean, anyone, not just anyone in leadership, any Christian who correctly wants to represent the Lord, Jesus, wouldn't want to hear, I'm coming to shut you down, I'm coming to judge you, I'm coming to discipline you and condemn you. A church would want to hear, I'm coming to honor you, to protect you, to take you through an open door, and to bless you. So verse 13 says, like all the rest, it says to us today, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is holy and true, the one who holds the key of David, the sovereign and mighty Lord, knew everything about this church. And they were not perfect, but they were faithful. And he poured out heaven's privileges on them, gave them the opportunity to be the open door for the gospel, promised to deliver them from the hour of trial, took them through an open doorway into heaven, and rewarded them with everlasting privileges. This is the reward and the blessed assurance of being a faithful church and a faithful Christian. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for your word this morning. This is a powerful and enriching portion of Scripture. And Lord, if we're honest, we, are, we feel a little overwhelmed by all of it. But we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your grace and kindness toward us. And we live in the hope that we have all of this to look forward to. Lord, make us continue to be faithful, loyal, obedient, loving, persevering, and holding fast to the name that is above every other name the name of Jesus. Lord, use us as a church to fulfill your purposes and plans on this earth and may it be said of us that we are a body of Christ that truly represents you. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the praise, honor, and glory you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen.